The scripture reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. It can be found on page 888 in the Black Bibles. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon, near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The word of the Lord. Good morning. The Lord be with you. Uh, if I haven't gotten a chance to meet you, my name is Andres and I serve as a pastor here at Christ the King. Uh, around 10 years ago, uh, my wife and I had our first child. Um, Nancy was a week or two late, uh, according to the doctors, uh, from her due date. And so they had to schedule uh, an induction. They had to induce her. And so they had set the date, July 6, 2012. The night before, young first-time parents, we didn't get a lot of sleep. So stayed up a long time talking about what was coming. We were anxious. We were nervous. We were excited. All the typical emotions of first-time parents. We had to wake up early around five in the morning because we had to be in the hospital at six. So we drive and they induce her and we wait and she goes through labor. She's there all day until nighttime and the doctor comes in and says she's got to have a C-section. So they, uh, she goes through that and at 9.46 p.m. our healthy, beautiful baby girl is born, Leah Lynette. <laughs> 
And after that, they take Leah off to check her and, you know, they finish up with Nancy. They uh, take us to the room where uh, Nancy awaits, uh, you know, there's a bed there waiting for her and a very uh, comfortable uh, corner chair uh, waiting for me where they told me I was supposed to rest and sleep. And so uh, they bring the baby and they say, good luck. And so... uh, Wait a couple of hours, it's past midnight at this point, we're both super tired, the baby's asleep, we say, let's, let's try to get some sleep. A couple hours later, newborn babies do what newborn babies do, and Leah wakes up crying. Nancy had gone through surgery, so of course she can't get up, so I'm in the corner, asleep, and she starts calling out to me, Andres, Andres, I don't hear, she calls out to me louder, Andres, Andres, I don't hear, she starts throwing things at me grabs a pillow, chunks it across the room, great aim, and hits me. And I get up startled, I look at her, and she says, Andres, get the baby. To which I reply, what baby? And we can laugh about it now. Now, why are we able, uh, why does that cause us to laugh, right? Because that day was a big deal, or at least it was supposed to be a big deal. Our first-time parents, first-born baby, she's a girl. You know, that day is what's supposed to be momentous. It was an incredibly important day for us, a day that was supposed to reorient my life, that was supposed to change me, And I was supposed to realize, hey, I can't just sleep whenever I can or do whatever I can anymore. There's a human being who is now depending on me. You know, sometimes as as Christians, I think if we're honest, uh, we ask ourselves the question, is Jesus really that big of a deal? Is Jesus really a big deal? Um, For non-Christians, which I don't imagine everyone in this room of this size follows Jesus or has claimed Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so there's some of you that might be atheistic or agnostic. You don't really know where you stand with Jesus. And so uh, you might think about Jesus and say, yeah, I mean, great guy. It sounds like he did some really cool things. I've heard about him. Um, you know, really wise sayings, a teacher, maybe a prophet, you know, who said some, some really good things. But, you know, doesn't really make them any all that different, right, from other religious figures. Or for Christians, we might be tempted to think, I mean, yeah, Jesus is, 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 is my savior, but, you know, everybody has their own beliefs, right? And so we should kind of respect and let everybody kind of do their own thing and, you know, you do you, right? This, this works for me, you know, this religion, spirituality, Jesus works for me, but I'm certainly not going to impose that on anyone else. And what this passage that we just read this morning teaches us, reminds us very clearly is that Jesus is a big deal. That he's not just a teacher who had a lot of wise things to say. He's not just a prophet who claims to speak from God. He's not just someone who was very kind and, and generous and did a lot of really good things. He is and was and did all of those things. But beyond that, the claim of this passage is that it it says that Jesus was also God 
come down from heaven in the flesh. And that's a bold claim because if that is true, if what Christians have said and if the Christian story is true, then that changes everything. Because all of a sudden, Jesus is a big deal and we have to reorient our lives around him, who he is, what he did. In fact, all of history, all of a sudden, gains a new meaning. And so, that's what we'll look at this morning. And we'll look at this passage in three sections. Uh, first, we'll look at the curiosity of the people. Those are, uh, that's verses 22 to 30. Second, we'll look at the centrality of Jesus. That's verses 31 to 35. And third, our response, verse 36. So the curiosity of the people, the centrality of Jesus, and our response. So let's look at the text together this morning. First, the curiosity of the people. Now what we begin seeing right away in the passage is the beginning of Jesus launching his public ministry. Listen again how it's put, verse 22. After this, meaning not just after um, his conversation with Nicodemus, which uh, John Trapp preached about last week, uh, but also after his baptism and temptation in the wilderness. So a lot has happened in that after this. But it says, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. So by this time, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, had already launched his public ministry and had started his preaching tour, as it were, going through all of the towns and villages. And a lot of people had started resonating with his message. They started to repent of their sins and as a sign of committing to this movement, they were undergoing baptism. And apparently, as far as we can tell, uh, he was gaining followers by the hundreds, right? This wasn't some minor, small, marginal religious movement. There were tons of people that were listening, repenting, and being baptized. And many of, his, uh, of these people listened to him, his teaching, they became his followers. Uh, John the Baptist's disciples, uh, his students. Uh, they wanted to follow him everywhere he went. They wanted to learn from him and submit to him. Now, this was a very common practice at the time. If you were listening to someone that seemed authoritative, seemed to have good teaching, and you wanted to learn from them, you would begin to follow them. That's what it meant to be a, a disciple, uh, a student, a learner, a follower. Uh, somewhat similar today, you listen to someone that you really like on YouTube or on Twitter and you subscribe to them or you begin to you know, follow them. Uh, similar concept except here, you would literally reorient your whole life around that person and you would begin to follow them wherever they went and do whatever it is that they said. And you have to remember, uh, no one had come along or had seen someone like John the Baptist in a very long time, right? In centuries at this point. All of the Old Testament prophets were dead. All of the priests had become these really old relics of a glorious past. 
And there were other teachers coming around, but they just didn't seem to carry the same authority like John the Baptist had. In fact, Jesus himself had come along a couple of months earlier, pointing to John the Baptist and told his listeners, there's never been a greater man alive than that man. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets. The point is, John the Baptist, kind of a big deal, right? And verse 23 says that John was baptizing as well by this one place where there were a lot of waters because a lot of people were following him. A lot of people wanted to listen and learn and submit and become learners of John. But along comes, in the midst of all of this, another teacher, a prophet of sorts, who had also launched his public ministry at this time. And he had also started preaching and teaching, and his message was also resonating and tugging at the hearts of listeners. In fact, he had also started baptizing. And many people were coming to him to repent, to be baptized. They were submitting to his authority instead of John the Baptist. And it's around this point that John the Baptist's followers, his disciples, his students begin to take notice. And what do his eager, zealous students do? Well, they begin to argue with others about what John and Jesus are both doing, namely baptism, or at least that's what it seems. Because in verse 26, we learn what they're actually arguing about. They come to John and they say to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. Now, what's happening here? Well, what we're seeing is John the Baptist versus Jesus of Nazareth. Two young, energetic, up-and-coming, prophetic leaders of a new religious movement. And we know that in the movement, only one person can be the face of the movement, right? And this was their issue. They were following John the Baptist. They liked him. They were submitting to him. They thought he had a great message. And in those days, you didn't just call anybody a rabbi, right? You had to have the credentials to back it up. You were a teacher, an interpreter, someone who claimed to teach and speak for God. And that's precisely what his followers call him. They say rabbi. And so they're trying to defend him. In other words, what his followers were really saying was rabbi. John, look at that teacher, look at that leader, look at that guy taking your thunder. He can't do that. What school did he even go to? Who gave him his credentials? I mean, why did he even even call us to let us know what they're going to be doing? Who is this Jesus anyway? Who is Jesus That's their claim, that's their question, that is how they are defending John the Baptist. How do you see Jesus? How do you see Jesus? Is he just another rabbi or teacher? Someone with really wise, maybe important sayings? Maybe a prophet who claimed to speak for God, who healed a lot of people? But I mean, that doesn't really make him all that different from other religious figures that have come along, right? That just puts him along the same lines of Muhammad or Buddha 
or Confucius. They also had wise sayings and they also claimed to heal and do miracles. So what makes Jesus different? How does John the Baptist respond to his students, to his listeners? John the Baptist knows what they are aiming at. He knows what they're trying to say. He knows that they've misunderstood and they confused Jesus to be just another prophet, to be just another leader, to be just another teacher. Because he tells them, guys, hold on. No, this is not just another man. This is not just another authority figure or leader in a religious movement. In fact, he's the Messiah. You can't even put us in the same spectrum. He is the anointed one of God who has come to fulfill a specific task and purpose that God himself has sent them for. Because of that, I have to decrease and he must increase. In fact, he's the bridegroom is what he tells them. If you remember your Old Testament, the bridegroom imagery was used of Israel's relationship, God's covenant people, and Yahweh, God Almighty. God often throughout the Old Testament is referred to as a groom, as a husband. Israel is referred to as a bride, as a wife. Isaiah 62, just to give one example, says, just like a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. That's the claim. Now, one of my favorite things that I love and that I get to do as a pastor in my profession is marry people. There is nothing quite like that day getting a behind the scenes look at all the chaos and the frenzy, uh, last minute changes that only I know about, nobody has any idea about. But I get to stand up here as the groom makes his way, stands beside me. And as the doors are open and the bride stands there, shining, shimmering in white, the audience stands, looks toward her, and all eyes are fixed on her because she's the bride. But what nobody else notices, what I get to see, is the groom. Everyone is looking at the bride, and rightly so, but I get to see the groom, his eyes shimmering, his stares straight at the bride. He has seen her hundreds of times, has he not? They've met up, they've gone on many dates, but in that moment, there was just one thought in his mind, she's mine. That is my bride, that is my wife, that is my love. That is why, she is why I am here today. And what the Bible says is that that is the kind of love that God has for his people. So what John the Baptist is saying to bring it all back to this text is Jesus is the bridegroom. Do y'all remember how God is referred to as the groom wanting to be with a bride, with his church, with his people? That's Jesus. And he's finally here. He's here to meet you. He wants to be with you. He's in your midst. The bridegroom is here. I am not the bridegroom. At best, I'm the best man is what he tells. I'm the guy on the side. 
but I don't get to claim the bride. Only Jesus does because it's his bride. It's his people. It's his church. Now, how can John the Baptist say something like this? How can he be so sure that Jesus is the anointed one, that Jesus is God himself come down from heaven in the flesh? That's the second point. Number two, the centrality of Jesus. The centrality of Jesus. Here's how the author puts it in verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth, and he speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. Comes from heaven. You've got here in this one tiny phrase what perhaps sets Jesus far above and beyond any other person who has ever existed. And that is that his origins are otherworldly. In fact, they're heavenly. That's what John says. What John is saying is whoever comes from heaven is by nature above everyone, right? He has to be. That's the logic that John is using here. Somebody comes from heaven, that means they are higher. And yeah, they can claim more authority than whoever comes from earth. And in the Gospel of Matthew, that's exactly what is said of Jesus, that he is Emmanuel, that he is God with us, God in the flesh, God with skin on. And those who have given their lives to Jesus, those who trust him, those who have those who cling to him, those who have known him for who he truly is, John says that they can testify, they can verify that Jesus really is who he says he is. Verse 32, Jesus bears witness to what he has seen and heard, but no one receives his testimony. But whoever does receive his testimony sets his seal to this, can verify this, can be sure of this. Whoever trusts in Jesus knows that God is true. That's what John says. If you truly set your mind and your heart in knowing Jesus and understanding Jesus, not just knowing about him, but setting your affections toward him, to trust him, to love him, to worship him, to honor him, to actually seek to grow in your knowledge about him, then what John says, you'll also get to see. You'll also get to know. You'll also verify what we've seen, what Christians have experienced, what Christians have claimed and affirmed for thousands of years that Jesus is God in the flesh. That's the claim. Uh, Beyond that, uh, says John the Baptist, he has, Jesus has been sent from God the Father and he's full of the Spirit. Verse 34, he whom God has sent utters the words of God for he gives the spirit without measure. When you send someone to do a task, they are there representing you, are they not? Whatever they say, however they act, it is as if you were saying it and as if you were doing those things. That is the unique relationship that this text says Jesus has with the Father. 
God has chosen to reveal everything about him in and through Jesus. Uh, there was one uh, bishop many decades ago that says it's not so much the fact that Jesus is like God, but that God is like Jesus. Everything you've wondered about what God is like, what would he say, how would he speak, how would he walk, how would he think, how would he act in certain situations, Jesus reveals that to you. If you wonder how God feels about certain people, look at Jesus. If you wonder what God would say in a crowd, look at Jesus. Yes, there have been other prophets who have been sent by God with a message, but only Jesus is God coming down himself to deliver the message. The prophets would say, here's what God says. Only Jesus says, I am God, so here's what I say. Then verse 35 reminds us that the Father loves the Son. Four times in this gospel, in the gospel of John, um, Jesus says of himself that he has been loved by God. Now, he's not using this generic kind of love, right? Kind of like um, we heard last week from John three sixteen, 16, uh, God so loved the world. This is a unique, intimate uh, kind of bond that exists between the Father and the Son, between God and Jesus. It's a love that no one else can share. It's a love that is so unique and special and intimate. Listen, I love a lot of people. Um, I love a lot of you guys. I've shared with you, you've shared with me a lot of your struggles, um, a lot of your anxieties, your stories, a lot of your pain. And I've been there. It is one thing to tell you that I love you. It's another thing to tell my wife that I love her and to tell my kids that I love them. I love my wife and my kids. That doesn't take away from the love that I share with others. It is that there is a unique, intimate, one-of-a-kind bond and love and intimacy that exists between me and my wife and me and my kids that cannot be shared, that will not be shared with anyone else. That's the kind of love that the Father and the Son have, that God and that Jesus have. Who else can claim that? Who else can say that? Who else can even believe that? And so finally, our response. Number three, our response, verse 36. If, God, uh, if Jesus is God come down from heaven, if what the Christian story claims is true, if what Christians believe and have believed for thousands of years really is true, that Jesus is God with skin on, that's kind of a big deal. That changes everything. All of a sudden, you know, we can try to ignore that. 
we can try to minimize that, but it has to reorient our lives. The meaning of history itself is in the balance here. And so John ends this section with these words, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Now, did you catch that there? It, we've been predisposed to think that it should say, whoever believes in the Son will have eternal life. Yeah? But that's not what the verse says. It's a present verb. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Not will have, but has it right now. It's theirs. They own it by right and by inheritance. And it says that the only response that is required of the listeners and of the readers is to believe. I won't talk too much about that because John preached about that last week. He preached on John 3.16. But I'll simply focus on belief in the Son. That's what the text says. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. It's not trusting in myself or all the good or bad that I've done. It's not pretending to come to church, to God, to confession, as if I've done everything right. I know that I haven't. God knows that I haven't. It's that I'm trusting in the Son, in Jesus, in the Redeemer of my soul, who stands before me before the Father, who has been given all things, as John just said earlier. And what's the outcome of that trust? It says, whoever, has, um, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Not um, will have eternal life. It's you possess it now. You experience it now. You enter into its full benefits here and now. Now that is a huge deal. Because one of the greatest misunderstandings in modern uh, evangelical Christianity is this idea that if you believe in Jesus, then you will die. Then when you die, you'll go to heaven. And we call that the good news. There is some element of truth to that. And that is true. And that is good. But if I'm honest, it can seem kind of boring. Because what does that have to do with my marriage? And what does that have to do with my relationship with my kids? What does that have to do with my homework and my stress? What does that have to do with all the injustices I see or that I've experienced at the hand of others? What does that have to do with the here and the now? With the frustrations at work? With the sadness and the pain and the anxiety that I feel? If that is true, that does not cause my heart immediately to leap for joy or my lips to speak and shout for joy. And the problem is we've simply misunderstood eternal life, what that means and what the listeners, the hearers would have heard and would have understood because see, in their mind, they would have seen this as a culmination of a story that we be began way back in the Garden of Eden that continued 
through the Exodus and the Torah into the Old Testament prophet and was finding a fulfillment in Jesus. And that is the story of a good God, Genesis 1 and 2, who creates a good world and then creates humans to rule over that world as stewards, but as partners with God, as God's co-workers in this world, seeking beauty and justice to build things, to work it, to keep it. But through their own folly and sin, um, instead, they are separated from the presence of God. They are cast out of the garden and they turn away from God's very presence. They, la- they lose access to the very source of life and because of that, it leads to death. But what the Gospel of John will go on to describe is how Jesus, through his death and resurrection, once again gains access to that tree of life, to that holy of holies, to the very presence of God on behalf of all of us. So that when we place our trust and our faith in Jesus, all of a sudden we gain access to that life that we were meant and created to live and to be in the Garden of Eden. Not a perfect life, not an easy life, but a good, true, honorable, joy-filled, spirit-filled life here and now. You can experience retroactively its benefits in the present You don't have to wait till you die to experience life after death. That's the claim here. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But John also issues a warning. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You'll notice that the first half of the verse says whoever believes the son and the second half of the verse says whoever does not obey the son. In the biblical framework, to believe is to obey and to obey is to believe, to trust. There is no dichotomy there. In other words, as Jesus made clear in the Sermon on the Mount and Paul describes in his letters and James will warn his readers, it's not enough to say you believe in Jesus. There is a a superficial kind of belief, a temporary kind of belief, sometimes even a false kind of belief that the Gospels are constantly warning us about, but it all boils down to this. Does your belief lead you to obey Jesus, to follow his commands, to delight in him, to learn from him, to be taught and become his disciples, his learners, his students, so that your life will be changed and transformed. That, according to the New Testament, is true belief. Otherwise, it's not true belief and we will not see life, but instead, God's anger, his wrath, his displeasure, is on us. For many, when they read or hear the wrath of God or his anger, it proves what they think they already know about the Christian God, that he is this angry, uh, petty, uh, vengeful, uh, uh, bloodthirsty deity who is eager to condemn everyone to hell. 
But that would be a complete misunderstanding and frankly a confusion about the story that the Bible tells. God is not eager to send anyone to hell. He's not eager to punish people. You've not understood the Bible if that's your perception. God is not eager to destroy humans. He's eager to destroy and eliminate that which destroys humans. He wants to take away that which takes away our lives. That which cuts off our access to the tree of life, to his very presence. God is pro-human. He is pro-world. He is pro-creation. He is for us in the best sense of that phrase. It's why, as John told us last week, God sent his son so that whoever believes in him would have life. But if you would rather not accept this gift, if you would rather not believe, If you'd rather disobey, then the only possible logical conclusion and outcome is that you are moving away from the source of life. Think of it this way, and I'll end with this. Uh, Imagine you're in a park, and in the center of the park is a waterfall. And you're in the outer edge of the park. And you begin to walk towards the waterfall. What would happen as you begin to walk closer and closer? Well, at first, you'd begin to feel a small mist. Eventually, you start to feel some more of the water drops until eventually, if you get to the very center of the waterfall of the park, you would be drenched, completely wet with all of the water and basking in it. Now, imagine if you were to instead begin at the waterfall and turn away and begin walking away from the waterfall, what would happen? Well, at first, you'd probably still feel some of the drops, some of the mist, but over time, you get far enough away from it, you start to get dry, until you get to a point where you don't feel any of the water any longer, and you're cut off from it. You don't even see it anymore. Do you get the image? Jesus is life. To be with Jesus, to get Jesus, is to have life. He is the source, the foundation, the very being of life. It's not just that he has life, he is life. The closer you are to Jesus, the more drenched with life you will be. But if you turn away from him, if you don't want him, then the further you walk away from Jesus, the closer you will be to death. And that state of being is what the Bible refers to as the wrath of God. You are separated from him. And the only thing left is to be cut off from life. What Jesus is offering this morning is access to life here and now. Will you believe? Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this passage. Reminds us of the beauty, the uniqueness of Jesus. I pray that all of us who have believed would seek to get closer and closer to that source of life. For those of us that are doubting, perhaps, and have turned away from that very source, would you cause a deep repentance in us to turn back to the one who is the source of life? For those that maybe don't believe yet this morning, would you cause an awakening by your spirit, issue that call that leads to life so that they might know you, Jesus, as Lord and Savior. Through Christ our Lord, amen.